Diversity is essential for any business. But what about cognitive diversity? And how can you reach what often seems like an elusive goal of including the right mix of people so same-level thinking doesn't cripple your organization? In today's podcast, I'm going to be sharing three steps to bring the vitality of cognitive diversity into your company. Hi, my name is Will Sampson, and I am a social scientist who helps guide executives and companies toward new levels of growth. You know, if you want to improve your life all by yourself, that's your business. But if you want help from others, well, that's our business, and that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. And we do that by inviting people into a growing revolution of interdependence. Today, I'll be sharing with you a talk I recently gave at a diversity and inclusion seminar hosted by my friends and partners at Human Insight. I trust these ideas spark a larger conversation about how we can create a revolution of interdependence everywhere, including in our companies and our organizations. Enjoy. Thank you, um, and I'm so appreciative to Human Insight for the opportunity to present to you all today. Um, I I felt a little bit of a burden um, coming toward the end of the, the end of the day, and at the end of some people I really respect and some really amazing brains and amazing voices in this conversation on diversity and inclusion, um, and so. Um, it, it felt, I, it, it felt like a burden to me, a positive burden to really ask the question, you know, what could I bring toward the end of the day, um, that would be maybe unique, um, would be different. And I'll be talking about some, some case analysis as Scott did. Um, but I think one thing that I can also do is really maybe just question some of our underlying beliefs and assumptions about diversity and inclusion, and also make a really strong pitch for uh, the value that has become critical to my work these days, which is the value of interdependence. So um, just to give you a sense of my background, um, I do, um, one thing you'll notice as a theme in the introduction and in all the other work I do is that um, I tend to teach technical people social skills. <laughs> so I tend to teach technical people how to, um, how to operate in a social world, how to bring uh, their problems into social contexts. And that makes sense in terms of my background. So my training I, I, is both in information technology for which I hold a master's from GW and in, and in sociology for which I hold a PhD in, from the University of Kentucky. So I spent a career now um, really helping technical people um, think socially and helping them analyze and understand the social implications of their, of their choices. And even my work at Purdue is great because I get to teach young engineers social science. Um, and what I spend my day day on is really into, divided into two camps, which is that I, I work coaching C-suite executives exclusively in the tech industry 
And I will tell you, if you come from other industries, um, that's awesome. <laughs> I've, I've tried to work uh, in other industries and not been particularly successful. So my work is exclusively in the tech industry and I teach C-suite executives or I coach C-suite executives. But then I also do a lot of work around, as Marianne mentioned, around change management, particularly in large mergers and acquisitions. And I wanna tell you a story about why I do that and kind of how I got into that, because I think that might help maybe set the context. So I was for many years a technical resource. I started as a hardware guy um, and I worked my way up and then I was a software guy. And if you know how tech works, um, inevitably that means you're gonna end up managing people and managing projects and managing programs. And so in the early 2000s, I was um, asked to manage a very large project. It was for a very significant, a large-sized educational nonprofit, and I was asked to manage a program for them of, of multiple projects. And, um, you know, I had come out of the, the tech world where you just worked and you got stuff done. <laughs> And, and you did everything you could to avoid meetings. It, you did at, at all costs, you avoided meetings. Um, and suddenly I was in charge of technical people and developers and business analysts and all that. And they just wanted to meet all the time. And it drove me nuts. And so because I was a program manager, I had, I had my own conference room. So I thought, okay, well, let's, how can we solve this problem? I know. What we'll do is I'll have the janitors come in and take out all the chairs out of the conference room, because if there's no chairs in the conference room, surely people are not going to want to sit around and have these hours long meetings. That's how my brain worked at the time. And so uh, so I did. I had the janitors come in. They took all the chairs. They put them in a closet down in the basement. And it's probably about two days later. I came back from lunch and I walked around the corner and there were two technical people, a business analyst and a project manager sitting on the floor in the middle of the hallway, having a meeting. And I remember I went to the, I went to the janitor and I said, what, how, I thought we, you know, we got the chairs out of there. Tell me what's going on. And I remember this guy said to me, he said, you know, man, people have got to want to change. And, and I bring that story up because so often we jump into the how-tos. When we come to these conversations about diversity and inclusion, we all want to spend time on the how-tos. And diversity is good, right? But could we specifically identify why diversity is good, why it's a value we hold? I mentioned that I talk a lot about interdependence these days. Interdependence is a much needed value, I believe. Can I articulate why? Could you articulate why? Why reliability on each other and why trust are important, right? Um, do we, can we really articulate why those values matter to us? Or have we just been sort of handed a set of values from our culture? Do we all want to be sort of good um, progressive liberals where we embrace values because of how they uh, make us feel about ourselves, you know? Or is there some basis for believing that diversity and inclusion and interdependence, that these are actually values that will help us succeed? 
And having spent a great deal of time answering this question, uh, I can tell you without a doubt, definitively, the answer is maybe. Like, we, <laughs> it's, it's just not that simple. Um, because the real question is not, will the values that we attach to diversity and inclusion and, interdepend and interdependence help us succeed? The real question is, what is success? How do we define success? And so, um, let's see, there we go. So the real question is, what do you value? And so I'll give you an example. I was just interviewing, Scott and I are both involved in the leadership of a nonprofit. And as part of that, we were just doing some, some lessons learned interviews and some exit interviews with people that were part of a nonprofit we had helped foster in the Midwest, of, in the Midwest of America. And we were interviewing people who had been involved in this nonprofit that did things like taught mindfulness and meditation, uh, Qigong, you know, a lot of the sort of mindful arts and so on. And I was interviewing someone who had implemented mindfulness programs as in connection with this group for a, a school district, a particular Midwestern school district in Ohio. And I asked this individual, I said, was it, was it hard to sell mindfulness, a mindfulness program to an administration? And I, I don't need to tell those of you that work in the nonprofit space, but sometimes coming up with um, KPIs, key performance indicators, measurements, right? These are really difficult often to have or to find in, um, in these less tangible, these less, you know, um, sort of triple constraint, time, scope, and money type programs. Um, and so I asked this person, was it, was it difficult to sell a program of mindfulness to, um, to the administration? And she said, no, it, it, was, it certainly had to make sense. And we had to attach some key performance indicators to it. We had to, we had to have some measurements. We had to tell them how many mindful classes we'll have, for example, uh, what we think the transformation will be for the students. But, and she made this really interesting um, statement just right on the nose. She said it was an easy sell because the administration already valued the outcome. So it was easy to sell this mindfulness program because the administration already valued the outcome. And it just, for me, underpinned and underscored this concept that we are really adept at achieving what we value. But when it comes to diversity and inclusion, it seems to me, we need to be sure that we are thinking about creating that shared set of values and not just rushing headlong in terms of how we integrate the programs to create those values with our clients, with our organizations, with our government entities, whatever it is. You know, I, um, I used to teach in the college classroom and one of, the, one of my favorite classes to teach because it's part of my background was in social movement theory. And so I did a lot of work teaching uh, Martin Luther King and the, um, and the movement that he created, the movement for civil rights. Um, you know, King valued the dignity of all people. So he 
combine that value with hard work. And sorry if you can hear the, <laughs> the sirens in the background. Sorry about that. But he combined that value with hard work and he achieved, it, at least in the American context, two of the most important pieces of legislation we've ever passed, which is the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, but here's the problem is that the worst dictator in history can kind of tell the same story, which is they rolled up their sleeves and they helped create a world that matched their values. Now, I'm not trying to be flippant or dismissive or, or political at all, for God's sakes, but what really separates King and Gandhi and some of these people that we respect from the worst dictator is that we tend to agree with their values. Now, like I said, this is not a political talk. I'm not here to discuss politics or beliefs. We're here to talk about we're here to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace, in our nonprofits, in our government spaces. But I guess as I was preparing this talk, I became aware of how I tend to pick and choose values and data that support my view of the world. And so, you know, when I'm coaching organizations about the value of diversity, and because I do a lot of work on change management and particularly around large mergers, I do a lot of work on culture, cultural diversity, cultural awareness. Um, but when I'm coaching an organization about the value of the diversity, you know, I tend to love to talk about the companies that I love, frankly. So, Here's one that I love. I love Patagonia. Like anytime, anytime I can slip a Patagonia reference into a presentation, I'm going to be happy because as, as great a company as they are, and they've really, they were really built from the ground up to be a fairly equitable, just diverse um, company. And yet four years ago, Patagonia said, you know what? We're, we're still not there. We're still not there. And so they actually organized a, an offsite retreat in the woods because they are Patagonia after all. And they, and they met and they heard from diverse voices and they, and they created this statement afterward. They said, we can and should be doing a lot more to actively engage with individuals and communities who are historically underrepresented in the outdoor community, the environmental movement and our own company. And we all cheered, hooray, you know, because Patagonia, even Patagonia, as cool as we think as they are, and as much as they focus on diversity and inclusion, they had something to learn. And so I love to, to trot out Patagonia as an example whenever I can talk about them. Another one I like to talk about is salesforce.com. Not as, not as evident, but from the market, but if you look at them internally in terms of their structure, um, they are a company that really was built from the ground up to value, uh, to value diversity. If you read um, Behind the Cloud by Mark Benioff, uh, who started Salesforce.com, the idea of diversity and inclusion um, has, was built, in, built into the company from the time they started in the late 90s. They were one of the first companies to have a corporate social responsibility individual at the CXO level, at the, at the same level as the CEO, CTO and the CFO and the chief human resource officer. Um, and, this is, um, and this is Salesforce's recent um, comment about 
equality, creating a culture of equality. It isn't just the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing. It empowers us to innovate, build deeper connections with our customers and ultimately, ultimately become a better company. Again, hooray, you know, we love, we love Salesforce because they match it, or I love Salesforce, won't speak for you, but from my experience, we love, I love Salesforce because it matches my values. Um, and so, you know, whoever Mark Benioff or whoever actually created this statement, you know, they, they, they created a set of values that I tend to agree with and we cheer that. So if Mark's, if Mark Benioff said it, then I'm going to want to quote it if it's quotable. Now, here's another example. This is from a, a fast growing American coffee company called Kofefe Coffee. If you don't know, that's a, uh, it's a mistake uttered by the previous president. And there's an entire company built around counter democratic values. And they're one of the fastest growing coffee companies in America. I don't want to focus on them, but here's what I want to want to remind us of that. We want to live in a world where the values of diversity and inclusion always work and always work the best. But the reality is that we create what we wish to create. We, we form our companies around a set of values that we hold and we shape our companies around the set of values that we care about. And if you, if you uh, remember, if you're an, at all a presidential historian, in 1992, a young governor from Arkansas ran for president of the United States. And their, the um, primary slogan was, it's the economy, stupid. I didn't want to write the word stupid on the slide, but it's values. Like, like it's always going to be the values. It's always going to be the values. So, you know, my work on interdependence it, these days is on interdependence. And interdependence is a value. And it's also behavior, so is diversity, so is inclusion. So what do those values and behavior share? Well, they're things that require trust, which is itself a value. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna use a large organization um, that I took through a significant culture change, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar organization I took through a significant culture change as they were merging with one of their larger competitors. And I'm going to talk about some of the lessons learned from that. So, so we say it's about the values and we want to um, promote values. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up and talk a little bit about this. The other thing that, that, that I have noticed is that so often we place our value equations as a higher level of group achievement or as a higher level of growth for our organizations. So we say that, and I see this all the time because I work a lot with CTOs and CIOs and they'll say things like, well, you know, we really got to get the organization together and then we'll focus on things like, um, you know, equity in the workplace or making sure that our, um, you know, our people are well represented in terms of where they work and where they work from. And this was true even before the pandemic. What is key to me and what I've continued to observe in my work is just like interdependence is a key value at every level, so is diversity, so is inclusion. 
And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, one of the things that I'm going to challenge you on is to ask, how can those values be built in, not as sort of add-on strategic initiatives, but instead, how can they be built into the culture of the organization itself? And here's the thing I will say about that is that I have now worked with large multi-billion dollar organizations, and I've worked with you know, five-person real estate firms in, 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 local, in the local area. The ability to inculcate the values, the ability, ability to sort of deeply integrate values at every level of an organization is really a function of the desire of the leadership to bring those values in and is not as much a function of the size of the organization. So um, the values of diversity, inclusion, interdependence, they can be brought in to any, um, at any level. So how do you bring in values? Well, the first step is really determining what your values are. So I was brought into a large uh, tech company, a large defense contractor who wanted to figure out how to create a more agile workforce. And this was, they were, uh, they were th three, almost four years ahead of the pandemic. So they were thinking ahead of time about how do we create an anytime, anywhere, any device uh, type of company. And when we first sat down, the question was, okay, well, you know, what kinds of, their, their questions were things like, well, what kinds of technology will we need? Great. You know, we can, we can think through that. Let's, let's, let's talk about mobile devices. Let's talk about smart devices, things like that. Let's, let's think about those things because those are important. But my challenge to them and the reason why the, the integration of this campaign was so successful is because before we got to the technology, we started asking questions like, what values does your organization hold and how does this effort support those values? So for example, even a large defense contractor, one of their values was, how do we empower people with lower levels of social capital who may not be sort of our typical hire, if you will? Well, one of the ways you do that is by um, ensuring that people can work even when they find themselves in difficult circumstances. So doing some research, we learned that there was a whole segment of the user population that were um, in what we call, and this was a large company, tens of thousands of people. There was a whole segment of the user population that was in what we call the sandwich generation. So these were individuals caring for children and caring for parents at the same time. And one of the values the company said they held was to empower those individuals to be able to do their work, but still care for the people in their life. That was a value that came up in our survey. So suddenly, giving somebody the ability to check their email on their phone is not just a convenience for the company, but it's, it's a expression, it's a direct expression of the value of that organization. Um, we looked at different technologies that would be, um, 
that would be integrated into these mobile devices and into the other technology that was going to allow people to work anytime, anywhere on any device. And we were, I was successful in helping them think through different neurocognitive diversity or neurodiversity. So they were really able to think about different UX approaches because not everybody looks at things the exact same way. And so again, that's, that's a value of cognitive diversity. In that case, it was neurocognitive diversity. But what it did was it helped shape um, the technology decisions they made. Now, I'd love to say, I'd love to tell you this perfect, this story about an organization that was perfect and all of their decisions were made based purely on values. And that organization, as far as I know, doesn't exist. Even the purest nonprofits don't make decisions that way. But we were able to um, work with the organization and say, what values do you hold? And then will those values take you to a place you desire? And so in long-term planning, we were able to build change management and cultural change management, KPIs. And so often, especially in large corporations, but this is true in the government space as well, um, when we come in to do contract work, it'll be there'll be some sort of key performance indicator, set of key performance indicators attached to it. People will be able to process a claim 10% faster. People will be able to uh, answer their email, you know, in one hour shorter time, whatever it is we're measuring. But we were able to attach key performance indicators that were mostly attached, that were mostly related, I should say, to survey data and to sentiment data. And so what we were able to do is to look and say, okay, how do people talk about their work? And are they going to talk about their work in a way that more closely matches the values you're trying to espouse? So what values does your organization hold? And will those values take you to a place you desire? And then I like to ask people to focus specifically on three key areas. So you should be able to come up with a set of values for people. How do we want our people to be shaped? How do we want our people to be? Um, what kind of people do we want? And, and uh, um, I'm glad that Scott brought up the idea that cognitive diversity is also a excellent method for achieving other kinds of diversity. Because when we look for cognitively diverse people, and the AEM cube is a fabulous tool for finding them, but when we look for cognitively diverse people, see, cognitive diversity tends to be distributed evenly. <laughs> and so when we look for cognitive diversity, we tend to find those other kinds of diversity in our people. But when we have people values attached to our outcomes, then that really gives us the ability to think deeply about these questions like diversity and inclusion. Certainly profits, I've, I've yet to work for, a, to be hired by a company that wasn't able to figure out how to make a profit. But even in terms of profits, um, some of the more successful companies, and we see this, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a really interesting set of data now coming out of the, um, coming out of the pandemic. And, and from that, what we're seeing is that um, 
many of the companies that succeeded in the pandemic are those companies that had a good balance between people, profit, and social impact. So one great example is a company called Gravity Payment Systems, which is up in in the Seattle area. If you're in the American context, or you you may know of them because the the CEO is a guy named Dan Price. Dan Price made some waves a few years back because he agreed to peg his salary to the rate of the lowest paid employee in the organization. And so he understood that there was a, a strong connection between how he thought about profits, even his own profits, and how the organization was gonna survive. And guess what? They came through the pandemic like a champ. And then social impact. And this is another thing, if you, if you look at, if you're familiar with the business roundtable or any of the sort of thinking around social impact that's happening both in the American context and globally, it turns out that the most socially aware companies tend to also be those who do well in the market. Salesforce is one example. Another one is SAS Software, which is which was for years voted the um, one of the best places to work, but also tends to uh, and also but also was a uh, was a market leader in terms of in terms of software. So step one: determining your values. And then step two, really develop a balanced scorecard that that encompasses all three of those areas. And we can talk about that more in the Q&A time. But so often our balanced scorecards are around time, scope, and money. You know, how quickly can I get something done? What's the proper scope? How much is it going to cost me? Um, But what I found with that particular initiative is that because we were able to develop a balanced scorecard and because the organization, because the company bought into the idea that making values a key part of the outcome, making values a key part of the measure of success, allowed them to create a balanced scorecard that actually uh, made the overall um, implementation of this campaign far more successful. So historically, these kinds of campaigns succeed in about the 70 to 80% range. And by the end of these, and I've done these, I did this in one other company, by the end of the, of the campaign, you're just hunting down the people who haven't, who haven't bought over and haven't come into the program. That particular campaign was 98% successful because we were able to develop a true balanced scorecard. We were able to, to develop a, a true um, balance between all of those areas. And we were able to um, have the leadership of the organization buy into the idea that profit alone or time scope and money alone were not enough, that you really needed these other values to be uh, a part of the success of of the initiative. All right, and then Step three, go big or go home. And, and you know, I, I started this with um, maybe a little bit, I didn't mean, I don't mean to be dark, but maybe a little bit of a dark perspective, which is that, you know, the values, you know, we, we want diversity and inclusion, inclusion to be deeply embedded in the values of everything that we're a part of. But the reality is that um, that's not always going to be the case. And so if you wish to make the values 
integrated into everything you do. Um, how do you do that? Well, first of all, build interdependence into everything you do because it's the antidote to a lack of inclusion and diversity. And so um, part of what we need to bring to our organizations is really the sense, a sense of the countercultural nature of diversity and inclusion. We, we wanna make it sort of the um, accepted norm and we wanna sort of bring it to people and say, well, yeah, of course we, diversity inclusion, yes, we should be a part of that. But really building a model for diversity and inclusion to get there is critical. And I believe building interdependence is the most countercultural thing we can do. The, so I'll, I'll give you a, an illustration of this, which is that um, I've been doing some writing on this idea of interdependence. And, and I actually use, um, I use AI software to help me write some of my, some of my copy. It's a product called, it's a piece of software called Jarvis. And what Jarvis does is it goes out and it reads the internet. Um, and it looks at everything that's been talked about, everything that's out there. And it, it claims to have at any time to be reading up to 10% of the internet. So it's able to get a real clear sense of what the internet is talking about. What's happening in the culture scape. It's, scape. it's a good, it's a good judgment or a good measure of what people are talking about generally. And so because I'm focused a lot on, on interdependence, I went to this piece of software and I said, I asked it to help me write about interdependence and how we help each other. And what it, what it ended up writing about was, you know, yeah, interdependence is pretty great, but eventually you're going to have to succeed on your own. Interdependence is pretty awesome because it's how you can thrive and how you can get ahead. Um, the reality is that Interdependence, this idea of building networks of reliability and trust um, is absolutely critical to diversity and inclusion because it is, it is the, it is, it creates the operating system in which diversity and inclusion can thrive. The second practice that I encourage is what I'm what I've been calling mimetic inoculation. And, and Scott kind of hit on this a little bit earlier which is making the right values normal, like the life of your organization depended on it. So often we, um, you know, we encourage these programs, but we don't, um, we don't realize that programs or organizations, I should say, will take on a life of their own and will become their own thing regardless of how, or, or if only if we nurture them, they will become something of value. They will hold the, the values we, we espouse if in fact we nurture them. And so the idea of mimetic inoculation is really to particularly find ways to showcase and highlight the behaviors that you want people to, uh, to inhabit and to create uh, inoculation against those behaviors that, um, that don't match that. And then use technology. You spend all day um, learning different models, learning different methods. I'm a huge fan of the AEM cube in terms of um, helping people, um, helping understand cognitive diversity and how to implement cognitive diversity. 
So use the technology, use the methods, use the models, read the case studies. But organizations are living things and they will become the values that you feed them. I hope you enjoyed that talk. And here are some prompts for this week. First, take a look around your organization and ask yourself what values are being exhibited. If someone were to walk in the door of your organization without ever having read your marketing brochure or your branding statement or your whatever, your corporate mission, what would they actually observe? Because the reality is that your company's operating based on a set of values, but those might not be the same values some consultant helped you develop. And second, if you were to rate your company on the balance between people, places, and social impact, how would you fare? All companies need to be profitable, but the companies that are going to succeed in the era that's coming are those that know how to value their people and draw the best talent by creating a culture of social responsibility. And then third, have you built interdependence into your company? Is it, is it at the core of your operating system? Do your people feel like they belong to something greater than themselves? That their job is more than just a paycheck? Because belonging is a killer app for recruiting and retaining the best minds. And speaking of places to belong, I'm still working on ways to carry this conversation forward outside this podcast. But for now, you can follow me on social. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at the Will Sampson. And that's a wrap for today, folks. Please hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episode. Thanks, everyone. And I will see you next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.